Good morning, Calvary. Today we'll be reading from two passages of Scripture. The first is found in Matthew 5, 17 through 22. And the second is in Romans 8, 1 through 11. Matthew 5, 17 through 22. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes in one of these, one of these of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least to the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brothers will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brothers will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And now, Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Calvary. And uh, hope, 
Hope you're doing well this morning. I want to uh, thank, say thank you to the Moore family uh, for our pre-service lectionary reading, and especially to Asha. If you, uh, so Asha, if you're out there listening, uh, thank you for reading, and to all the Moore children. If you guys missed uh, the Moore children reading, I'll encourage you to go back and listen, because I think it's uh, worth the price of admission this morning. All right, so here we are. We're continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And uh, we're turning the corner here in 2021 with the New Testament and looking at the life of Jesus in particular. And so we looked uh, a number of weeks ago at Jesus's baptism, and then we looked at his wilderness temptation last week. And then between last week and this week, uh, in the rest of uh, Matthew chapter four, Jesus called his disciples to himself and began his public ministry. And here in Matthew chapter four, 5, we get into uh, his teaching ministry and uh, most famously his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is perhaps the most famous of all of Jesus' teachings and, uh, and is renowned uh, really as a kind of a pinnacle of, of ethical conduct uh, that people, both Christians and non-Christians, have looked to as a model for how uh, we should live our lives. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount this morning. It gives us, I think, a very good picture of Christianity's view of human flourishing. And so how, how are human beings supposed to live in the world? And Jesus gives us this picture of how we're supposed to live and conduct ourselves uh, towards God and towards others in the world in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. So this focus this week and next week will be on the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to be able to do it justice. We could spend an entire 10 weeks probably on just these uh, three chapters or more. Uh, but we're going to do our best to kind of hit the main themes of the Sermon on the Mount this week and next week. Now, if you've been tracking along with us last year or you're uh, uh, knowledgeable about the scriptures, you know uh, that this isn't the first time that God has sent an ethical vision for human flourishing. Uh, looking back through the Old Testament story that we read last year, we got to the giving of the law, and the law was a gift from God given down to the nation of Israel, and it too contained a vision for human flourishing. So this isn't the first time that ethics and human flourishing has been introduced into our story. And the Israelites who were entrusted with this vision, this law, this uh, way of right conduct in the world, uh, didn't do so well with it. And uh, as we saw last year, uh, they had a pretty sustained pattern of neglecting the law. And it got so bad uh, that one of the consequences for the continued neglect of the law was being cast out of the land into the land of captivity. Uh, and there in captivity, they learned their lesson. And so they, when they came back from the land, they got really serious about obeying the law. So much so that now as we open up the pages here in the New Testament, one of the principal people that we see in the Gospels are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are the Jewish religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And for them, the law had become king. And uh, they were very serious about obeying the law. But too much so, we're going to discover here in our Sermon on the Mount. They had rightly pulled Israel out of the, the ditch of libertine disregard for the law. But 
all they had succeeded in doing was flipping over to the ditch of moralism and too much regard for the law. So as we're going to see as we look here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, the law is not an end in and of itself, but it's a pointer to some other end. And the Pharisees had forgotten this. The law prophesied about the transformation of the heart that was fundamentally needed, but it did not itself contain the power of the transformation of the heart. But that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. We're going to be talking about that this morning. But as we kind of get into our text here, let me ask you, do you feel in your soul the need for the transformation of the heart, the transformation perhaps of your own heart? Morality, the Christian vision of morality is more than just right behavior. I think sometimes we can think this way, even as Christians, I think those outside the church can think this way about Christianity as well, that what Christianity brings to the world is kind of moral behavior, a vision for morality, which every religion brings a vision of morality. So there's nothing particularly unique or new about moral behavior, Christianity's view of moral behavior. Christianity brings more than just moral behavior, a vision for moral behavior into the world. So if you're a Christian this morning, let me encourage you as we dig into Jesus's teachings on the Sermon on the Mount to be thinking about this more than that Christianity brings, the transformation of the heart. That's got to be the center of what we're about as Christians for our vision of uh, flourishing in the world. If you're not a Christian this morning, you might be uh, thinking uh, that kind of fallacy of thought. Like, why do we need Jesus? I mean, every religion brings a vision of moral behavior. Why do, what's unique about Jesus? And I want you to see that this morning. What's unique about Jesus in his vision for human flourishing? All right, so our plan this morning is to look at Matthew 5, 17 through 22, which is kind of the beginnings, as it were, of the Sermon on the Mount. Not quite the beginning, but in there. And then we're going to fast forward into uh, the Apostle Paul's comments in Romans chapter 8, which was read for us, about how he came to understand the Sermon on the Mount in relation to the law. And, and then we're going to apply uh, what we find in these two texts to our lives uh, and see how we can live this out. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, uh, 17 through 22, which has been read for us. Uh, there's uh, really, if you have your English Bible and you, if you look at it on the phone, you kind of can lose us a little bit. But if you've got a, a paper Bible, you can kind of get the whole Sermon on the Mount spread out there on the pages in front of you. And you can see that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in uh, verse 21, he begins to tackle different topics, right? And so we read just in 21 and 22, we read just his comments on anger. But if we were to continue reading, we could see that in verse 27, he tackles the topic of lust. In verse 31, he tackles the topic of divorce. In verse 33, the topic of honesty and oaths. In 38, retaliation. And then in, in verse 43, about love for one's enemies. So he's tackling a number of different topics. And we didn't take time to read all of those uh, topics. But we see the pattern of how he tackles these topics here in the comments that we read about anger. He says in verse 21... You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now this comment, you've heard that it was said, and then he 
says what was said. He's referencing the Old Testament law. So he's looking back to the Old Testament law and he's saying, you've heard that it was said in the Old Testament law, you shall not murder. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, and he gives, seems to be a new law. He says here in in verse 21, but I say to you, whoever uh, is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So we see this same pattern all throughout this Sermon on the Mount through chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, he'll say, and then he'll quote the law. And they'll say, but I say to you, and he will will add something different. He's going to bring a new law. And one of the things that we see in this pattern, the main thing that we see in this pattern of you've heard that it was said, but I say to you over and over again, is that Jesus is essentially raising the bar. He's saying, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. But now I'm saying to you, don't even be angry. So like Jesus is taking it to a new level. And the way that he's taking it to a new level throughout all of chapter five here is he's taking the ethic, the behavior, and he's pressing it down into one's desires or affections or even one's emotions, we might even say. Right. So Jesus is saying it's it's not enough to just refrain from murder. You now need to not even have murder in your heart. You need to not have even anger in your heart. Or you go into his comments about lust. He says, you've heard that it was said in verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's saying it's not enough just to have the right behavior. Right? The right behavior is fine. That's a starting point. But you have to get beyond the right behavior down into the right desires of the heart. So Jesus is pushing beyond the Old Testament law from behavior down into affections and in the heart. And then he's also raising the bar in this way. He's going to, at a number of these places, he's going to say, it's not enough to just behave rightly or to even desire to behave rightly towards one's friends and family. You need to extend this right ethic, this right behavior and desire, even out into your enemies. So you can see this clearly in verse 43, if you want to scroll ahead there or page ahead in your Bible. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it was standard fare within the Old Testament law that one was to extend love to one's fellow Jew. Those were the neighbors that were considered that you extended love towards. But you weren't called upon to extend love outside the boundaries of the nation of Israel into the pagan world. You were called to stay away from the pagan world. And so Jesus is saying, that's not how it's going to be anymore in the kingdom ethic, right? You're not just to extend love to to those that are kind of within the fold, within friends and family, but you need to extend this love even out into your enemies, Jesus says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward are you going to get? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So Jesus says, you're going to have to do better than just loving your own. You're going to have to love your neighbors or your, uh, your enemies as well. So Jesus is moving his ethic down into the heart, into our desires, and he's extending it out into the whole world. This is something that's expanding beyond the old covenant law. Now, Jesus is misunderstood then by many in his day, and maybe even many in our day, frankly, but he's misunderstood by many, and particularly by the Pharisees, as negating the Old Testament law. So you remember now that Israel got sacked by the Babylonians. We can go back into our story from last year. They got sacked because they had abandoned the law. They had not paid attention to the law. 
And so here Jesus comes along. He's this popular teacher. And he's saying, you've heard that it was said, and he quotes the law, but I say to you, and he gives a new law. So he's seen by the Pharisees as dismissing the law. And that had led to the very problem that had put them in captivity so many years ago. So they're very resistant to anyone that's going to dismiss the law. But Jesus is saying, I'm not dismissing the law. I'm actually fulfilling the law. So verse 17 here, I want to come back to this now. What does Jesus mean in verse 17 when he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now the law and the prophets, that's just another way of saying the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, right? So Jesus is saying, I haven't come to to abolish the law. I haven't come to do away with what was said in the law. I've come to fulfill them. The term fulfill literally means to fill up. So if we think about a cup, pouring water into a cup, we are fulfilling the cup. We're filling up the cup. This term is used uh, most often in the New Testament, certainly in the Gospels. It's used most often as a reference to, to the fulfillment of prophecy. So earlier in Matthew, we had uh, five or so different prophetic fulfillments where Jesus, for instance, would come out of Egypt and then Matthew would say, thus fulfilled the prophecy out of Egypt, I will call my son. And so we have this fulfillment. It's like a cup. The prophecy is like a cup. And then the, the fulfillment of the prophecy is like the, the water sort of poured in and filling up the cup. So we have this term fulfillment used most often with reference to prophecy. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment. I am the filling up of the prophecy that exists in the law and the prophets. He is the object that the law and the prophets, the scriptures, have pointed towards. So in John chapter 6, he's in another debate or I don't know if it's actually chapter six, but it's in the uh, gospel of John. He's in a debate with the Pharisees and uh, he is saying to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life, but they testify of me. I'm the one that the scriptures are pointing towards as the object of eternal life. Now I want to press this empty cup metaphor though a little bit further. I think we can even get a better metaphor. Jesus doesn't just fill up the prophecy like water poured into a cup, but even more precisely, like liquid metal poured into a mold. So I worked in uh, a metal finishing shop for a number of years while I was uh, doing my, my graduate studies. And uh, in this metal finishing shop, they would send in, uh, companies would send in molds. And not the kind you breathe in and then your lungs turn black, but the kind of molds that were, uh, you would use to, to uh, pour liquid substances into that would then harden, right? So we can think of like a jello mold, right? And so we would, we would work with these molds and we would kind of get them all finished up and ready to receive whatever the substance was going to be poured into them. Now, I never actually saw the, the, the object itself that was created from the mold. I only ever worked with the molds. But you could get a sense a bit of what the object was going to be like by looking at the mold because the mold was sort of a rough sketch. It was, it was a gesture towards the object that was going to eventually fill it up. So the Old Testament law, we can think of in that same way. It was a mold. It was a rough sketch 
of Jesus' kingdom ethic. It was an unfilled container that pointed to the shape of the kingdom ethic, but wasn't itself the kingdom ethic. So what Jesus, when he comes and he says, I'm the fulfillment of the law, he's saying fundamentally that he himself, his person, embodies or fills up, has been injected into, you might think of, in this way with the mold, into the Old Testament's mold or shell. So what the Old Testament law sort of created space for and gestured at, Jesus is the fulfillment of that very thing. The Old Testament law could gesture at love. It could gesture at purity. It could gesture at truthfulness, but it couldn't get all the way there. Right? It was just a sketch of God's complete vision for human flourishing. But it, it didn't contain the substance itself. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament ethic, then his ethic is greater than the ethic of the Old Testament law. So the Old Testament law, as we already mentioned, were primarily related to, to Jewish behavior towards one's fellow Jew. But now with the dawn of Jesus's kingdom, the vision of human flourishing that Jesus is bringing will no longer be solely about behavior, but even more fundamentally about one's right heart, one's right desires. And no longer will God's ethical vision be circumscribed just to friends and family, but it's going to extend out into the whole world. And this kind of pushing down into the uh, interior desires of the heart and then extending it out into the whole world, this greatly vexed the Pharisees. Because they had dedicated their whole lives to becoming masters of right behavior towards their fellow Jews. They had given themselves vocationally to mastering the law, to becoming completely in control of their behaviors. But they had never been able to master right desire. The interior life wasn't fixed. They had the exterior life straightened out, but they couldn't get the interior life fixed. And Jesus, eventually later on, he's going to call them whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but they're full of death and decay on the inside. And the Pharisees had not been able to master the right desire, and they didn't have any love for their enemies at all. Their attitude towards the Gentiles, the enemies, was, was really atrocious. So here is Jesus. He's raising the bar. He's giving the full three dimensions and color, as it were, to God's law, what it was meant to be and pointed towards all along. And they can't measure up anymore. They were able to get there with relation to the law, right? When the law's focus was on behavior and into the uh, community of Israel. But they can't get there now that this fulfillment of the law has come in. Jesus, in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here are the Pharisees, they had mastered the law, but now mastering the law wasn't going to be good enough anymore. Jesus was bringing a higher ethic, and they fell short of it. All right, so what do we do with this? I mean, if Jesus is both raising the bar and extending the bar outward, I mean, how does that help us as Christians? 
Well, on the surface, immediately, it does not help us at all in any way. I mean, right behavior with my friends and family is hard enough. But right desires with relation to my enemies, I mean, forget about it. I mean, am I the only one here that feels that? Right? So if we're just talking about mastering right behavior, that's hard enough to do. Right? But now Jesus is just simply making it even harder to live into the, human, uh, the vision of human flourishing that God is calling us to. So Jesus' kingdom ethic, if you consider it just as itself, I don't say anything more about it, it doesn't help us, it actually crushes us. Which brings us to the Apostle Paul and eventually to Romans 8, 1 through 11. But as we're making our way to Romans 8, 1 through 11, let me just talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul. So if you've been around church for a while or know much about the Apostle Paul, you know that he too started before he began to follow Christ, as a Pharisee. He was one of these masters of the law. So in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about his life before Christ. And he said, I was, a, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a you know, Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee, right? And like any good Pharisee, he said, I was a master of the law. And then he says this. He says, in regards to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. I had mastered the law. I had got it down. I, I, had, I had worked hard I, and I had got to the place where I could control my behavior. I could control my behavior to my, to my fellow Jews. Right? So he had mastered the law. Except maybe if you caught him in a moment of honesty, there was that slippery 10th commandment that was just a bit tricky. Do you remember the 10 commandments? You don't need to turn there, but if you want to, you can go back to Exodus chapter 20. God gives the law through the prophet Moses on Mount Sinai. And there's a lot of things that are contained within the law, but kind of the heartbeat of the law, the summation of the law is found in the Ten Commandments. And so every good Pharisee would dedicate themselves to the whole law, but particularly you had to nail the Ten Commandments. And a lot of the Ten Commandments, they're just, you know, they're straight bread and butter behavior. Right, so go back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. No other gods before me. Paul would be like, check, got that. Don't make any carved images or idols. Checked, no carved images or idols. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Check, keep the Sabbath. Check, honor your father and mother. Check, don't commit murder. Check, don't commit adultery. Check, don't steal. Check, don't bear false witness. Check, and then the Tenth Commandment. This one was tricky because it was different. You shall not covet, which is just another way of saying you shall not desire, which is now getting a little bit of a hint and gesture into the territory that Jesus is taking. It's not just enough to not commit adultery or to not steal, but you can't want to commit adultery. You can't want to steal. You can't want to murder. The desires that are kind of baked into that 10th commandment, those were tricky. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he talks a little bit about his confrontation with this 10th commandment. You could follow along if you want to, Romans chapter 7. He's talking about perhaps himself before he came to Christ personally, or maybe he's just talking about the human condition before Christ. But he's saying 
that uh, I would not have known. Oh, he says here in verse seven, what shall we say then that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been the law, I would have not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul is like, I was doing all right. Commandments one through nine. But that 10th commandment of don't covet, it got into the desires of the heart and I couldn't, I couldn't keep it. I couldn't keep it. And that was sin. That showed me that sin was in the world. It should show us all that sin is in the world, that our desires of our heart are not what they should be. And so Paul goes on through the remainder of chapter seven, just lamenting the fact that he feels captive by the internal confusion and the swirl that's in his heart of sin. And he says then in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That this inability to control one's desires, not just control one's actions, Paul had managed that, but to control one's desires, this symptom of sin inside, who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul says. And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the answer to the problem of vexing internal disordered desires. Jesus doesn't bring a higher law. He himself is the higher law. So think back to Matthew 5. Jesus isn't saying my commandments, my commandments are the fulfillment of the law. He's saying I am the fulfillment of the law. Which takes us in then to Romans 8 and how Paul then had to reframe his understanding of his relationship with the law. The old law, Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 8, could not bring about the kingdom ethic because it was weakened by the sinful flesh. The law was not able to fix the disordered heart, right? The brokenness of the human person. The law could not fix that. It could just call to right behavior. And you could, with enough self-control and self-discipline, get to right behavior. But the right behavior wouldn't solve the disordered problem of the heart and the flesh, the old law had no power to give life. It had no power to fix the problem of sin. It was just a pointer, a rough sketch to the answer, not the answer itself. So then in verse 3, Paul says, God sent Jesus. The law wasn't going to fix human problem. wasn't going to fix the heart. So God sent Jesus. And when Jesus came, he condemned sin in the flesh. We talked about this briefly last week, but Jesus pulled sinful humanity into himself and he condemned sin in the flesh by taking it, our sinful flesh, and putting it to death in the cross. The law could not deal with sin. It could not fix the problem of sin, but Jesus could and he did. And then we look at verse four. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh so that in verse four, the righteous requirement of the law what the law had been pointing towards all along, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us as we walk by the Spirit. So Jesus is the, himself the fulfillment of the law. He's the object that fills up the mold that is the law. And then because we are united to Jesus by his Spirit, we, like Jesus, are also raised up in him to fulfill the law. 
in Jesus, we are being recreated, not according to the pattern of the old law, to the moralistic, external, circumscribed standard of the old law, but according to the internal, affectionate, universal, spirit-empowered standard of the new law. And that's what it means to be made into the image of Christ, which Paul goes on to talk about in Romans chapter 8. To be made into the image of Christ is to be made into the image that filled up the law. Jesus changes us through his Holy Spirit from the inside out to live like he lived, to be what he is. He is the object that fills up the law and he is making us into the image of himself so that we too fill up the law, as it were, fulfill the law. So verse 10 of chapter 8, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The body and the flesh, it still is dying. It still will die. But in Christ, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the soul springs to life, right? Through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We we come alive on the inside. The regenerative work of God begins from the inside to change the hearts and the desires so that our behaviors, as they are right, match the right desires on the inside. And then put that checkbook away. There's more. Look here in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that God put into Jesus to raise him from the dead, that is the same spirit that Jesus gives to us to raise us from our spiritual death to change us from the inside out so that when the spirit of God has completed his work in our lives, we're not just renovated on the inside, but in that great day of resurrection, we're renovated all the way out, even into our bodies themselves so that our mortal bodies through the spirit are given new life and are raised with Jesus from the dead. If we are in Christ, his resurrection power, the same power, is alive in us to transform us, not only now, but also to give us a share in the final resurrection. All right, now let's see if we can kind of pull all this together by way of application. Perhaps some of you this morning, I think all of us uh, as Christians can fall into this trap at times, but some of you this morning perhaps are trying to live into Jesus's higher kingdom ethic without the power of the Spirit. You've accepted Jesus' kingdom ethic, perhaps, but not his kingdom power. You're like the Pharisee, maybe, who has mastered the, the law, the right behaviors. But, but now as Jesus is calling you to something higher and greater, you, you can't get there, right? And you find yourself frustrated. I think all of us find ourselves frustrated at times spiritually when we know that we should do something or we know that we shouldn't do something. And knowing what we should do or shouldn't do, we can't get ourselves to that place, right? And sometimes we can get there if we're really disciplined with a lot of external pressure or, or self-will. We can get ourselves there in our behavior, but we can't get ourselves there in our heart. And that's because we're trying to live into Jesus' kingdom ethic 
without Jesus' kingdom power. I think this leads to two different sort of uh, problems. The first, if we're just honest about the ways that we're failing to live into Jesus' kingdom ethic, is we just abandon Jesus' kingdom ethic altogether. It's too hard to live in the tension of knowing what we should be externally and internally, but not being able to get there. And so we just give up on it altogether as uh, unrealistic and just it's too tiring. And maybe that's some of you this morning, right? Is you just, you, you, you've just given up trying to live into the ideals that Jesus is talking about. And so you can imagine a world where people can control their sexual behavior, but controlling sexual desire, that's just seems a bridge too far. Or you can imagine a world in which you don't act out your anger, but not having anger in your heart, that's, that's unrealistic. And, it's, and you just give up on that. It's just too hard to, to strive for it and always fall short. Or perhaps you haven't given up. You've just doubled down. And I think that can lead to sort of a pharisaicalism. And this is what the Pharisees have largely done. They've rewritten the ethic that the law was pointing towards into something that's more manageable. They've reduced it back down to just the external behavior and kind of circumscribed to friends and family or whoever it's easy to obey the law with. And so when we think about love, we think about love primarily in relation to friends and family. We don't think about love in relation to our enemies. And here I don't mean just enemies, the person that's trying to kill us, but perhaps the enemy at work or the enemy in the neighborhood, right? And so we can envision Christian love towards those who deserve it, but Christian love to those who don't deserve it, that seems too far. And so we take the Christian vision of love and we just circumscribe it down into something more manageable. We give to those who can give back. We focus exclusively on proper behavior, We manage to get good behavior on the outside through a lot of discipline and hard work. But we're broken on the inside and we're no better than the Pharisees. Maybe you're succeeding outwardly, but not inwardly. Maybe this morning you're not even succeeding outwardly. So let me just say in closing then a couple words here to Christians and then to non-Christians. So to my Christian brothers and sisters, my prayer for you in preparing this sermon and now here in preaching it is that you would come to understand that the power for Christian living comes from Christ himself through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That to be a Christian is not God just giving you rules to follow, right? If your vision of Christianity is essentially, here's a set of rules that I must follow, you You've, you've reduced Christianity to nothing more than just any other religion with its own kind of particularities and its own little systems and its own little rules, right? The vision of Christianity for human flourishing is not just the rules that one follows in external behavior, but the power of grace that God puts into our lives through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let me encourage you this morning, if you find yourself forgetting at times about the power of Uh, the kingdom ethic that comes through the Holy Spirit, don't just settle for an Old Testament ethic of moralistic behavior towards friends and family. Let Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount 
challenge you, lift you up, encourage you to see that there's more vision that God has for you than simply how you behave towards friends and family. That God is after a total renovation of your heart. So don't just settle for the Old Testament ethic. The other thing I would say to my brothers and sisters in Christ is be honest where you fall short. We just have to be honest where we're not measuring up because it doesn't all happen in a single moment. When the Spirit of God begins the renovation of work inside of us, it doesn't all just happen in one single moment. And so some things get a better start than other things. And we just have to recognize and be honest that there are places where we're doing better than other places. And we just need to acknowledge that. And we need to be able to say there's grace for that. Right? There's grace for that. The Apostle Paul uh, in Philippians chapter 3, he speaks of the Christian life as something that he is, the ideal of the Christian life is something that he is striving towards. He says, I, don't, I haven't become perfect yet, Paul says, but I press on to take hold of that which, for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. So Paul doesn't see that he's finished and that he's all done, and that he's perfect. He says, there's grace and there's mercy for the places that I fall short. And I just keep pressing forward into this life transforming power of Jesus that will raise me up on the last day. And then the last thing I would say is press forward in faith with expectation. I think the two ditches that we can fall into when it comes to sanctification is we can have a over-realized eschatology, which is the idea that all that God's going to do in the end, he's already doing it in the present. And so we have these high, high expectations that frankly become unrealistic and, and turn us into liars because we can't admit that we have any sin. Or we have an under-realized eschatology, which says that all that God's going to do for us in the future is only in the future, and he's doing nothing for us in the present, and we just kind of have to muddle along and do the best that we can in the present. The reality is we're in the middle on that, right? We're a work in progress because the Holy Spirit has come into our lives and is in the process of transforming us, which means that we're not looking like we're going to look at the end, but it also means we're not just looking like we did without the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. And we should look forward in faith that God will continue to work in us to continue to transform and to change us. So we should move forward into sanctification with expectation that God is not only going to help us gain increasing mastery over our behaviors, but even increasing mastery over our heart. So if you're at that place in your life, perhaps, where you know that you're falling short in your heart, you know that you're not being what you should be in your desires. You've been honest, right? And you're willing to acknowledge that. Don't despair or give up. Don't write it off. Say, God still can change me. God's going to continue to transform me as I keep pressing into him and I keep surrendering myself to him. God will continue to change me from the inside out. All right, to my non-Christian friends this morning, here's what I would say that Jesus' kingdom ethic has to say to you. First is to take note and to recognize your need for Christ. We cannot become fully human in our own strength. This has been the message of the Bible from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We all need the life and breath of God. That's what it means to be a human being. We live by the life and breath of God. And sin is when we reject the life and breath of God. We say, we don't need the life and breath of God. We can, I can be alive on my own. 
That's what sin is. So recognize your need. If you, this morning, have a recognition that you can't be all that you need to be, you can't be the full version of your human flourishing self apart from God, that's the place to begin. And the second thing you do is you surrender then the sovereignty of your life to Jesus. If you can't make yourself what you should be, and the world around you can't turn you into what you should be, then who can turn you into who you should be? Only God through Jesus Christ. And so surrender the sovereignty of your life to Jesus and then trust him to forgive you for all the places that you have fallen short of being what you should be and trust him to transform you starting now, putting his life and breath back into you and changing you and transforming you on the inside out all the way into the great day of resurrection. Becoming a Christian is likened in scripture to getting married. So if you think about how it is that a man and a woman become married, particularly in our culture, there's a private subjective engagement between the uh, prospective husband and wife where there's an offer of marriage is made and an offer of marriage is received. But that's but just between the two of them. Right? But then that private subjective engagement is then extended and celebrated in a formal ceremony, a wedding. So that's a pretty good picture for how conversion to Christianity works. There is a private subjective encounter that takes place just between Christ and the prospective Christian. And it doesn't need to involve a church. doesn't need to involve another person. You can do it right where you are sitting in your home listening to this stream. Christ is speaking to you by his spirit. He's inviting you to enter into a marriage relationship as it were with him. Right? And you can say yes to him in that moment. You might say something like this. Lord Jesus, I can't be what I know I should be. I've tried and failed. You created me. You know what I need. Come into my life and make me your own. Forgive me for all my failures, past, present, and future, and fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can walk in the newness of life. Just say yes in this moment to the invitation that Christ extends to you. And then just like in a wedding, there's a formal ceremony and a celebration. That's what baptism is. Baptism is the, the, the community of faith coming together and celebrating, ratifying, as it were, formalizing this subjective personal encounter with Jesus. And so we have baptisms coming up here in Easter. And if you've not been baptized uh, before and uh, you are looking to be baptized, Easter is, there's no better time to be baptized than Easter. But maybe even this morning, you have opened up your heart to Jesus. and You've said yes to the invitation that he's extended to you and you have recognized your need for him. You've surrendered the sovereignty of your life to him. You've turned your life over to him, right? Take that subjective moment, that subjective experience and celebrate it with us together at Easter uh, coming up in baptism. Well, if there's one thing that I was on my heart mostly to say this morning, is that the Spirit of God that has been unleashed on the people of God by Jesus Christ, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same Spirit dwells inside of us and is the power to transform us from the inside out, 
into the kind of people that God wants us to be. So let's pray. Join me in praying that God would make that true of all of us here this week. Father, thank you that you've given us Jesus, who is the unleasher of the spirit, the breath of God, who helps us become all that we should be to fulfill your vision for human flourishing. God, I pray that you would cause us uh, to trust in that spirit, to not think that somehow apart from you, just in our own isolated strength, that we can be everything that you want us to be. But to trust that your spirit's power inside of us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is unleashed inside of us to help us become all that you want us to be. I pray, Lord, for those this morning, perhaps, who have never given their lives to you. They've never reached out for salvation. I pray uh, for Lord, those that maybe uh, even this morning have done that or their heart is stirred to do that. I pray that they would find that time this, today, even this morning, to, to turn their hearts and their lives over to you, to be redeemed and reborn and remade. And I pray that they would then step forward and celebrate that with us, Lord, in uh, baptism this coming Easter. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.